five-year-olds, it's three-year-olds to fifth grade. Vince is the youth pastor. You know, hey, it's his first time up here. Cut him some slack, all right? God bless him. But I really want to encourage you. That's a great... We did something similar at Calvary San Jose when I was youth pastor over there. The kids get really excited. It's kind of a Juana's-like, and it's, uh, you know, very hands-on. The kids have homework and memory verses and stuff, and they're really excited to do it. My kids were that age when we lived over there, and they couldn't wait for Wednesday nights to come. So I want to encourage you to pray about getting involved in that. All right, Galatians chapter 4. Before we go to the Word, let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. You're a great and awesome God. We thank You for Your Word, that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank You, it's not an old antiquated book. And Lord, I just pray for each of us here, Lord, that our hearts would be soft and be prepared to receive what You would want to minister to each of us, Lord. May we better understand Your grace. May we better understand what it means to walk in in maturity, Lord, before You. So, Father, may You be our teacher. May man decrease, that Your Spirit would increase, that You would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Tile the message today, the source of true spiritual maturity. Have you ever wondered how it is, how do I grow in my walk with God? What must I do to be closer to the Lord? And you know what? Paul addresses it in the first 20 verses of chapter 4, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And he's talking again to the people in Galatia. The letter to Galatians or the epistle to the Galatians. Galatia is not a city, but a region that had numerous cities in it. Within it were cities like Iconium and Lystra, but also Antioch, where he had planted the very first place where people were called Christians, was in Antioch. Now word gets back to Paul, having been away from there for some time, that now the Judaizers have come in. Who are the Judaizers? If you've been coming, you know they are the the Jewish people who have become Christians, but are still preaching that you must hold on to the law. That Jesus Christ alone is not enough. For a Gentile to become a Christian, they must first become a Jew. And then if you become a Jew and you're a good Jew and you're circumcised and you keep the law, then maybe you might be able to become a Christian. Now, as we know, Paul was very direct about what was being taught. He said in chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And then he said of those who are preaching this other gospel, let them be accursed or anathema. When we add to the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. It's not like we can pick and choose parts of the gospel we want or add to it the things that we think are necessary because the Word of God is very clear that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals salvation. Paul's making it clear later in chapter 2 that we are justified not by works of the law, but we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Justified just as if I've never sinned. That happens, again, not because I do enough good things so God will love me, but I put my faith in the Lord, and certainly the obedience does follow. In chapter chapter 2, verse 16, he said, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, for by works of the law no flesh shall be justified. In verse 21 of that chapter, he says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Jesus Christ died in vain. If we could be saved by just being good enough, there would be no need for the cross. And the cross of Christ is a non-negotiable. The resurrection is not something that can be watered down. 
Those are things that are absolute musts in Christianity. And I'm amazed at the number of, quote, churches that call themselves Christian that deny the cross. If you don't have the cross, what part of Christian are you? I don't get it. And Paul's making it very clear, you're justified by faith, not by works. It's not something you earn or achieve, it's something you receive. And it comes straight from the cross of Christ. And then we saw last week in chapter 3, that the law does have a purpose. What's the law's purpose? It's a schoolmaster. Because you might say, well, if the law can't save me, why do we have the law? Well, it says in chapter 2, or chapter 3, that the law is a schoolmaster or a tutor to lead us to the cross. If there were no law, we'd see, we would never realize that we were sinners in need of a Savior. So that's why the law was given. Now, certainly the law was a standard, and still to some extent is a standard, but it's not a standard for salvation. It's not the source that we turn to to prove that we've been born again, but it is the fruit of salvation. So it's not our good works, it's not even our religious heritage. As he ended last week's chapter, and this you know got the Jews fired up, because he told them that you're a seed of Abraham by faith, not by birth. It's not because you were born a Jew that you're now a seed of Abraham. It's not because you were born into a Christian home that makes you a Christian. You've heard me say it before, God has no grandchildren. You can't be saved because of your parents being saved. We each must come to our own individual relationship with the Lord. And so he said, you know what, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. I told you last week that Jewish men would get up in the morning and say, thank you God that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you God that I am free and not a slave. And thank you God that I am a man and not a woman. And then he turns right around and says, you know what, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ and aren't you glad, amen? And so that we come to chapter 4 now. And he's continuing to address the issue of the grace of God. But in this case, he begins to talk about spiritual maturity. To understand how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Too often we fall into the trap of listening to what the world says determines whether you're good or not. The use of the word karma. By the way, as a Christian, you ought to lose that word out of your vocabulary. Amen? Karma. Stop it. I mean... Oh, I did this, so then this good happened. I did this, and, this. and we, we have this cause and effect relationship. We think that because of our good works, then good things happen, and if we blow it bad, certainly there are consequences to sin, and certainly as we walk in obedience to the Lord, there are blessings that follow, but it's not our good works that produce good things. It's grace of God. Him alone be the glory, because if we did it, then we get the glory. If it's something we've achieved, something we've acquired, And so that has crept into the church where we start saying, well, if I want to be more godly or closer to the Lord, then I have all these rules I now must keep. And we think we're more mature by the more rules we keep. I used to only have 20, now I have 500. I must really be growing spiritually. But the problem is that it's really a sign of immaturity when we're adding more and more laws to to the gospel of grace. It's a sign that we think that God needs our help. I've had people tell me, well, God deserves it. God deserves it. What What are you talking about? So somehow I do something. Hey, guys, it all comes from him. Without him, we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And nothing in the original language is nothing. So we can do nothing. And we must be desperate for him. And so that's the point of the whole message today on the true source of spiritual maturity. It's not my works, it's not my efforts, but it's my intimacy with the Lord. 
It comes from a close, intimate walk with God. You want to be a reflection of Him? Spend time with Him. You want to walk in obedience to the Lord? Fall more in love with Him. And you'll be amazed how your desires will be His desires. You'll start to want what He wants. You'll start to be grieved by the things that grieve His heart, as opposed to trying to keep a bunch of laws so somehow I'll be more favorable in the eyes of God. To some it seems like semantics, but it's not. Because one, we're pursuing works, and the other one, we're pursuing the Lord. And we should not pursue works, but pursue God. Amen? So let's begin in verse 1. And just the two sections we're going to see this morning, the source of true spiritual maturity, is the inward transforming work of the Holy Spirit, not the outward works of religion. So we're going to see in verses 1 through 7, that as a redeemed slave, you receive the blessings of a son. But as a religious son, in verses 8 through 20, you return to the bondage of a slave. Guys, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And when we return back to religion, we turn back to rules and rites and, and rituals, and we return back to those things, we're turning farther away from God, not to Him. Because now we're trying again through our own efforts, as opposed to being fully reliant upon God. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at the source of spiritual maturity. That as a redeemed slave, you receive the blessings of the Son. Verse 4, or verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, now who is an heir? An heir is one appointed by his father's will to one day receive his wealth. An heir doesn't earn it. An heir doesn't achieve it. An heir simply receives it by birth. And you know what? We became heirs of God through rebirth. Amen? We've been born again, and now we have the inheritance promised to us. We're going to heaven. We're new creations in Christ. And we are His heirs, not because we've earned it, but because we've been born again into the family of Almighty God. And again, to Him alone be the glory. In Galatians 3.29 it said, Heirs according to the promise, not heirs according to heritage. Now the word here, it says here, as long as he is a child. The word for child there is a minor, not necessarily a small child, but somebody who's not yet an adult. And he says here that one who, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. So someone's an heir to a great fortune. And while he's a child, he still really has no more rights than a slave in the master's house. You know, Bill Gates' son, I don't know if he has kids, I'm sure he probably does. But Bill Gates' kids are in line to inherit a great amount of money. But you know what? When you're five years old, no matter how rich your dad is, you cannot write a million dollar check. Nobody will take it. You probably couldn't write it anyway. And the point he's making here is that even a child, this one who is a child, one who has not grown to full maturity, even though his father is wealthy, even though there's a great inheritance coming, he doesn't have access to that wealth yet, as he's still very immature. And while, in, again, in kindergarten, he can't write a check, no matter how wealthy his parents are. Now look what it says in verse 2. But he is, he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So he's watched over and trained and prepared and educated so that the heir would be ready when the day eventually came for him to take hold of that full inheritance as his father had set aside for him. Now, we're going to see the spiritual picture of this in a moment, but 
what the word here for guardian in verse 2 but is under guardians. The word there is tutor. What does it say in Galatians 3.24? That the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. He's saying they had a great inheritance coming, but they still were too immature to enter into it. So they had a guardian that watched over them and prepared them so one day they'd be ready to take hold of what God had for him or what his father had for him. And it's the same that's true for us. The law matures us. It makes us see our need for the Savior. It doesn't bring about spiritual maturity as much as it brings about our desperate need for the Lord. It shows us we are sinners in need of a Savior. It allows us to experience the adoption of Almighty God and enter into that full inheritance that He has for us. And that's the point he's making here. He's using this analogy in speaking to the people in Galatia. The law was a guardian for the children of Israel that they were heirs to the many promises of God. The law guarded them, protected them, and led them until the time that was chosen by God to enter into His full inheritance. And again, note that guardians, stewards, and law are all temporary until they found the inheritance itself. Now, here's the key, you guys. Prior to Jesus coming, the law was the standard for Israel. And the law included the sacrificial system and the feast. And every single one of those things pointed to Jesus. Every single feast pointed to the Lord, whether it be Passover and the angel of death passing over. If they put the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, then the blood of the lamb, then the the spirit passed over. The blood had to be applied or death came. Every feast pointed to Jesus. All of the law was a reminder of their sinfulness and desperate need of a Savior. But guess what? That law would not be in place forever. Just as the child would one day mature and the guardian would allow him to enter into the full inheritance of what God had for him, so too would the children of Israel, there would come an appointed time when it wouldn't be the law anymore, but God the Father would appoint that the full inheritance would be available. What happened? To make that happen. Who came? Jesus came. Paul's making it very clear that the law, that was the old covenant, that was prior to the cross. We don't need to go back and grab a hold of that anymore. We have the full inheritance available to us. We can know God personally and intimately, and we don't have to keep the feast anymore. We don't have to keep the rules and the rites and the rituals that were necessary for the children of Israel. Verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Prior to our coming to a place of maturity, receiving our full inheritance, we were in bondage to the elements of the world. Now what is that speaking of? The word there, element, speaks of elementary things. It points to the law. For the Jews, it was rules and rites and rituals and and regulations of their religion. For the Gentiles, it was the rules and rites and rituals and regulations of some pagan religion or worldly belief system. They're in bondage to it. Everybody on this planet is in bondage. Did you know that? Slave to something. You're a slave to the Lord or you're a slave to sin. You've either been born again and as a new creation in Christ, you're so convicted when you sin that God drives you into a holy, intimate relationship with Him, or you're a slave to sin, born to it aligned with it, walking in it. 
And people say, well, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to serve God because I want to be my own boss. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to your flesh. And you know what? Your flesh only leads to destruction. One out of every one person dies. And you know what? I know where I'm standing on that day. How about you? Amen? That's what really matters. Nothing else does. And so here Paul's making a very clear point that, look, we were all under bondage. You were all under bondage. He's letting them know you don't have to continue to be in bondage anymore. You can know the full inheritance of walking with the Lord. Look what it says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when the fullness of time had come, in God's perfect timing, you know, back then as a Roman father set a certain time for his son when he would come of age, so too did Almighty God. Before the foundation of the world, it says that Jesus was a lamb that was slain before the, before the world was even created. It was always God's plan. It would always come in God's perfect time. And in the fullness of time, in the perfection of time, Jesus came to earth. Now it says there in verse 4 that God sent forth His Son. So we know that He is the Son of God. So He is 100% God. He came to earth and He left heaven. Now, the rest of that verse says that not only was He born, sent from heaven, but it says He was born of a woman. So Jesus is not only 100% God, but He's 100% man. He's fully God and He was fully man. He was still God in the flesh, but He still dealt with all the things that we deal with in the frailty of our flesh. He still suffered hunger. He still dealt with sickness and pain and weariness. And He was tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin. Jesus can say to you, I know exactly what you're going through. He can say to you, I understand what grief is like. He can say to you, I know what it's like to be tempted. Before Jesus even began his public ministry, where did he go? He was baptized and went out into the wilderness for 40 days. 40, the number of testing. And there Satan tempted him. With the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, the very things that we've been tempted with. And I want you to notice, how did Jesus overcome temptation? He always did something in response to the devil. What was it? He gave him the Word of God. Every single time. And you know what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want to overcome temptation? You need to know what the Word of God says. Amen? And respond with God's Word, not with what the world's doing. Not, not aligning with the world, but aligning with the Word. Amen? And so He was 100% man and 100% God. See, the, the reason Jesus came is that the law can tell us how to live but the law can never give us the power to do it. Amen? The law was a standard that was impossible to keep until Jesus came. And it says at the end of that verse, born under the law. He was subject to the law, its demands, and yet without sin. Jesus alone was sinless, perfect, and holy, and only He kept the law perfectly. Now what is the sentence for breaking the law? What is it? Jail? What is it in the Bible? It's death. What does it say in Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is? It's death. And so it says that Jesus was born under the law, subject to the law, and yet He lived sinless perfection, and so He's the only one 
who did not have the debt that the law required. Why? Because he never sinned. Every one of us has the debt that the law requires because every one of us has sinned. Amen? And as I said last week, just quickly, Jesus lived perfect and holy and sinless, and he deserved heaven. His just reward was to return to the presence of the Father, to never know separation from him. You and I, sinners, have blown it. We've broken the law. And the wage we deserve is death and eternal separation from Almighty God. And you know what's awesome? Is Jesus deserved heaven and we deserve death. And you know what he did? He switched places with us. He took our penalty and gave us his reward. What a great and awesome God we serve. Amen? Remember that. Don't, I mean, we never let the cross of Christ go common. Ever. And praise the Lord as he came under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word redeem there means to buy back, to ransom, to rescue from loss. Jesus' sinless perfection, being that lamb without blemish, gave him and him alone the right and ability to offer himself as payment for our sin. His shed blood on the cross of Calvary was required price for redemption of the human race. Jesus brought you out of slavery. He set you free. And what I love about this is he didn't just set you free, but he made you his son and his daughter. Aren't you? Man, he is Abba Father. He's Daddy. Can I encourage you? My heart breaks. If you're here today and you don't know what it's like to have God be your dad, may you not leave here without knowing it. He's not a faraway, impersonal, distant God. He's perfect, holy God. And you know what breaks my heart? This whole debate that's going on right now about evolution and intelligent design. You guys been watching this? And you know what breaks my heart? I'm watching these people on TV, this panel of eight, quote, experts, and they're all these news people I've seen before, and they all look at each other and go, well, evolution has been proven fact for... What? Is that a proven fact? It's foolishness. Amen. It's foolishness. It wasn't, you know, the goo to the zoo to you. That's not what happened. But yet what happens is it breaks my heart because if they knew Jesus Christ is dad, they would have no problem with Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't have a problem with Genesis 1-1, you won't have a problem with the rest of the Bible. And that's where it starts. And sadly it's under attack. But you know what? I know my dad. And I know him intimately. And I know him personally. And you know what? He came to redeem me, to rescue me, to rescue you from sin from the penalty of the law, to restore us back into the Father, to adopt us into His family. There's no greater news in the world than that. We ought to be shouting from the mountaintop, amen? And too often we're afraid to share it with our neighbor because he might have a question I can't answer. He might not talk to me anymore. If we love him, we'll share the truth with him, amen? I know it's hard, guys. It's hard for me. You know what? We need to pray again and ask that the Lord would help us. We're His redeemed sons and daughters. He purchased us back. He paid the price. By the way, no one else could have purchased you back. Buddha couldn't do it. Hare Krishna couldn't do it. No religion, no cult, no good works, no chant can restore you. Amen? Because nobody else could do it, nobody else would do it, and nobody else did do it but Jesus Christ alone. Amen? 
And he proved that he's God when he rose on the third day. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. As his redeemed sons, purchased back, rescued from sin, brought into his family, adopted as his children. Now it says that we've been given that inheritance. And what's the down payment on heaven that he gives us? The Holy Spirit. How do we know we're going to heaven? The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. It says in Ephesians 1, we've been blessed, redeemed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven. And you know what? And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like down payment on heaven. The Holy Spirit is the ownership papers, the stamp upon my heart that I belong to the Lord. Now, he's telling the Galatian believers who are being tempted to turn back to the law guys he adopted you he redeemed you he's delivered you from the penalty of the law he's made you a new creation in him and he's given you the holy spirit to live inside of you now it's the holy spirit who allows us to walk in spiritual maturity not my fleshly efforts to keep a bunch of rules amen have you ever tried to do it i have anybody else here You set down some rules for yourself. I'm going to keep, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to, you know. And you know what? And we can do it for a little while, can't we? But we fail every time, don't we? Oversleep. Man, I was going to get up at five and read my Bible for two hours every day from now on, you know. Third day, you wake up drooling in your Bible, you know. (laughs) No sleep. And, you know, and again, if the Holy Spirit leads you to get up early and read the Bible, you ought to do that. But you'd be led by the Spirit, not your efforts, to somehow, I'm going to be a spiritual giant. I read that Billy Graham reached the Bible 20 times. I'm going to do that. You know? And God bless you, but let the Spirit strengthen you to do it, not your own flesh. Because you'll fail, then you'll be condemned, right? Try, blew it, you know? I'm no good, I'm worthless and weak. Well, that's true. But you know what? (laughs) Praise God for His grace, Amen. Praise God for His grace. It's by grace we've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're empowered to live a victorious Christian life by the Spirit of the living God. Now, we never take it for granted that Almighty God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is God. Amen? Amen. Not just an essence or a being or a, you know. Holy Spirit can be grieved. You know, now think about this. So that means when you go to sin, who are you taking with you? You're taking God with you. And, and you know it too, don't you? Because when you start, God's going, don't do it. Holy Spirit, if you're new here, the Holy Spirit head slap, how it always felt for me, right? Holy Spirit's going, don't say it, right? You ever felt that before? Is it only me? You know, every time you sin, the Holy Spirit goes, ah, right? Big stop sign's up. And we just, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. And then we do, and then we get convicted, don't we? Because we take the Lord with us. That's what brings about spiritual maturity, not me trying to keep the law. It's the Spirit of the living God living in me, working through me. More of Him and less of me, as John the Baptist said. And so the key to living a a life of spiritual maturity is not based on my efforts, but it's based on intimacy with the Lord. Because it said, and I'll note the Trinity in this verse. He says here, You are sons. God, the Father, has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. God the Father sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. 
So the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. You are not God, by the way. You are a daughter of God and a son of God, but you are not the son of God. Amen? Amen. Because you sinned. And you were adopted into the family. He is the only begotten of the Father. We came by adoption. He was begotten by the Father. Amen? So he alone is the son of God. We are sons and daughters of God, filled with the spirit of the living God. And I love this privilege that we can cry out, Abba, Father. That means we can call him Daddy. And I like that. I, it grips me to hear people talk about God and talk about a God who's just so foreign and distant. And maybe he's holding a lightning bolt with a big beard up in heaven waiting to smoke you when you make a mistake. Or, you know, these depictions of God that you see. That's not the God that I know. You know who my God is? My God is a God whose lap I can crawl into anywhere and any time. And I can share my heart with him. And he loves me unconditionally. That's my God. He's the God who I can pray to while I'm driving in my car down the freeway. He's the God I can come and intercede, speak to through the Son on behalf of my children, on behalf of you guys. He's the God I know intimately and personally. And you know what? That's where spiritual maturity comes from, is closeness with Him. Because the closer I am to Him, the more I want to be like Him. The more I want to walk in the center of His will. The less I want to grieve and break His heart. It's not done by my efforts, but it's done through intimacy. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Sons, not through the works of the law. What does it say? Through what? Through Christ. You didn't become sons because you got the checklist all finished. I have, you know, God bless them, but I have people I know who are very devout Jehovah's Witnesses. And I share the love of God with them. And people say sometimes, Pastor Dave, you shouldn't call out other religions by name. You better believe we should. Let me tell you why. Because the Lord loves them, amen? Amen. The Lord loves them, He wants to see them saved, but right now they're buying the biggest lie being sold. They believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe they're going to inherit the earth by their own good works. And it's so sad because they got a list this long of all the works they got to keep in hopes of being one of the 144,000 that's going to inherit the earth. Man, that's why they're sitting out of Kmart for 12 hours straight trying to hand out books. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. And you know what? I've yet to meet one with a whole lot of joy. How about you? It's always my turn at Kmart. You know what I mean? I got I to keep the... And you know, there's no joy. They're not celebrating Almighty God. It's, you know, you want one of those books? Here you go. You know what I mean? And I go and I talk to them, and they're just very stoic. And I'm like, man, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in Galatians 5, is love and joy and peace. Amen? Amen? It's not keeping a bunch of rules so somehow I might somehow maybe be one of the few that gets to enter in. I've entered in. You've entered in. You're his children. You're going to heaven. Man, doesn't it change the perspective on everything when we set our eyes on things above and not on things of this earth? Doesn't it make all the problems of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? When you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, that's what happens. The things of this world just pass away. They fade away. We get bummed out by the things of this world because we take our eyes off of God and we put them on us trying to be obedient and keep the law and do the things of the world to make ourselves satisfied. Your flesh will never be satisfied. Ever. And you know what the flesh loves to tell you? Just one more time, right? 
You ever heard that? I just got to sow some wild oats and get it out of my system. That's the biggest lie going because the flesh will just want more. The more you feed it, the bigger it gets. It just turns into this big old monster. Uh, uh, right? We just want to eat all the time now. We've got to starve the flesh. Amen? How do we do that? Pursue the Lord. Be filled with His Spirit. So the first portion here, we see that we're no longer slaves but sons. And the Galatians were being told that they were immature unless they started living up to a legalistic standard. That's what these Judaizers were telling them. You're immature unless you start keeping the law. But on the contrary, it's those who live by rules, who pursue religion under the bondage of the law, who are immature. They go back to rules and rites and rituals, and that's to turn your back on the relationship that you have with Almighty God. The pursuit of legalism is not maturity, but it's immaturity. It's walking away from God, not getting closer to Him. It's a lack of understanding of God's infinite grace and His mercy. It starts to make me feel like I'm more involved than I really am. It's more about me and less about Him. It needs to be less about me and more about Him. Amen? Amen. And so that's the point of this first portion, that God is calling us. God wants us to enjoy fellowship with Him as sons, no longer slaves in bondage to the law. Faith in Jesus growing spiritually it's about a relationship and not religion and as his heirs we've been redeemed we've been set free we've been adopted and we have all the spiritual blessings that again are now ours the christian walk is not achieved by religious observance it's received through a loving relationship let me say that again maturity spiritually is not achieved by religious observance it is received through a loving relationship Now, the second portion, we're not only, we're a redeemed slave, we have the blessings of a son, but when we become a religious son, we're a son and we turn back to religion, we fall back again into the bondage of slavery. Christians too often do this, going backward instead of forward with the Lord. Look at verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God... You serve those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Man, is Paul pretty direct here or what? He looks right at him and says, Guys, you've been set free. Why do you want to go back into slavery? You've inherited heaven. You've been adopted into the family. You're new creations in Christ. You're filled with the Spirit of the living God. Why in the world would you want to run back into the bondage of the law? Something you already know you can't do. What are you doing to yourselves? And it just breaks your heart to see people missing out on the joy they could have in the Lord. He says, before you were saved, you served these other gods, these idols and these rituals and the false gods of this world. And now that you're saved, why go back to that bondage? Your fathers declared you righteous. You're not to go back and try to be made more righteous by keeping an additional set of rules. Returning again to that former bondage and adding to the simplicity of the gospel. This is exactly what every cult does. Every cult out there adds to the gospel. Every cult out there brings people back into bondage to the law. Every cult out there says, okay, but here's, the, here's our rules. You must be baptized in our baptismal. You must be baptized as a baby. You must have your first Holy Communion. You must make your first public, you know, first confession. You must have the last rites. You must whatever. 
Well, Pastor David, did you just call the Catholic Church a cult? Well, let me say this. I believe there are Christians within the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church is outside of God's will. Ouch. It goes on the radio, get some phone calls. The Lord loves you guys, okay? Here's the thing. It's Jesus plus nothing. And we start adding to it. You must keep this day set apart. You must do this rule. You must do this right. You must keep this ritual. We're making the cross of Christ less than it is. Salvation doesn't come through any church. It comes through the Lord. So our allegiance is not to Calvary Chapel. It's not to the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, or any other church. It's to Jesus Christ. We stand before God on Judgment Day. He's not going to have all the Calvary Chapelites in this corner. All the Baptists over here, you know. Mormons, not coming in, right? No, he's not doing that. It's going to be where are you at with Jesus that matters, amen? Amen. And we're either his sons and daughters or we're not. And look what he says here, making it even more clear. Don't return to that bondage. Don't add to the simplicity of the gospel. You observe days and months and seasons and years. What's he talking about? The days and months and seasons and years were particular rules of right living that the Galatians were turning or returning to. Days were things like the Sabbath. Do we have to keep the Sabbath anymore? We're going to get thrown out of this building. Do we have to keep the Sabbath anymore? No. We enter into His rest. Amen? Amen. He is our rest seven days a week. Amen? And we should set aside time to worship the Lord and be with the Lord. But it should not be a religious bondage. That's not what it is. What about the months and seasons? They were festivals like Passover and Pentecost and sabbatical years. Keeping these things and others like them were not a mark of maturity, but a mark of immaturity if you believe that you need to achieve them to have a greater blessing in life. What about things like Lent? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. So what is it? It's man's attempt to somehow give up something to be more pleasing to God. It's rules and rites and rituals. What about All Saints Day and all these other things? Guys, it's not in the Bible. They're created by men. It's like the Pharisees. It's adding rules and rites and laws that put men under condemnation so they feel like they got to go more often to church to be free, you know, free of that bond and run back out. And, and it's just this vicious cycle of condemnation and hopefully restorate back and forth. That's not Christianity. We walk with the Lord all day, every day. All day, every day. Tetelestai, it is finished and aren't you glad? No more, nothing else. Praise God. The key to continual growth and godly living is continual reliance upon and obedience to the Holy Spirit, not fleshly efforts to keep rules and rites and rituals. Let me ask you a question and we'll move on. How active a role does the Holy Spirit play in your daily walk? Don't answer, but just think about that. How active a role does the Holy Spirit play in your daily walk? When you wake up in the morning, is God the first thing on your mind? When you're in your car, are your thoughts of Him? When you're talking to people and and interacting at work, is the Lord a a part of your constant thought process? That's where spiritual maturity comes, not from trying to do good works, but having intimate fellowship with God. You know what? I love to begin the day with prayer, and, I, and then the Bible says pray without ceasing, so I just call putting God on speakerphone. You start the day with prayer, and you just never hang up. Just keep talking to Him. It's okay. You might look, sometimes look like the people down in the mall talking to yourself, but that's all right. 
We're talking to somebody though, amen? <laughs> talking to the Lord. Having that intimate fellowship that never, ever stops. Verse 11, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul was afraid for them. You know what? He's been rebuking them, but we also see he's deeply burdened for them. He wasn't just coming in and bringing a sword and getting after them. He was brokenhearted for them. He said, you know, I'm afraid for you. I'm fearful for what stands before you if something doesn't change. If you continue to pursue the law to somehow to be pleasing to God, if you turn back away and, and forget about the cross of Christ, I'm concerned about where you're headed. Have I labored in vain? The word there, labor, means to literally to work to the point of exhaustion. Paul worked to the point of exhaustion in delivering the truth to the Galatian believers. Initially, they had received it with great joy, as we're going to see in the rest of this, this portion. But you know what? Sadly, people came along and told them, well, if you want to be really spiritually mature, then you've got to do this and this and this and this. And they started to buy it. And the cross of Christ stopped being so preeminent. And they started focusing on other things as proof of spiritual maturity. And before you know it, you're wearing long robes and chanting and walking around instead of having the joy of the Lord and being focused on Almighty God. Paul was burdened. He was burdened that the gospel had been shared with them in vain. He was burdened for his mission field. How burdened are you and I for our mission field? Do our hearts break for our co-workers? Are we fearful? Does it break our heart? He was afraid for them. Are you afraid for your neighbor? Are you afraid for your unsaved family? Are you afraid for your co-workers who don't know Christ? Are you afraid for the people you pass on the mall? Are you afraid? I mean, our hearts ought to be broken for them. Amen? Burden for them. Not right, self-righteous, but broken. Brethren, I urge you to become like me. For I became like you, and you have not injured me at all. Become like me. He said, I was once bound by the law, but I'm not anymore. Was there anybody more bound by the law than Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus? That guy was the law personified. He was going to go out and wail on people who didn't keep the law, get after them Christians. And he went from being the most legalistic man to a man who understood the grace of God, I believe, better than any man who's ever lived. Amen. He that's been forgiven much loves much, the Bible says. Amen? And he went from the most notorious enemy of the Christian church to one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. How did that happen? He met Jesus. He stayed reliant upon Jesus. He didn't return to the law. He said, become like I am, desperate for God. Become like I am, no longer holding on to the law. Seek after the Lord alone. Have intimate fellowship with Him. Begin your day, spend your day, and end your day in His presence. Become like me, not bound in the rules and the rights and the religion. He says, I become like you. He was not now like a Gentile, no longer living under the bondage of the law. And he says, you have not injured me at all. Now he's going to describe that in the next three verses. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial which is in my flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Paul had come to them in weakness and physical infirmity, and they received him with great joy initially. They were excited to hear what he had to say. They were blessed by the gospel message. They were joyful in the truth of its transforming power. They were so touched by its power of the message, its content, the gospel of grace, that they were not impacted 
by all the human frailties of Paul. It didn't bother them. It was the power of the message, not the charisma of the messenger that transformed their lives. So they were excited about the truth. And you know what? Maybe this is a word for some of you. Maybe there was a time, or maybe there was a lot of time, where you were just excited to know the Lord and walk in the fullness of His Spirit and seek after Him with with your whole heart. But now lately, like the Galatians, the law has come upon you and there's so many more rules you must keep to be pleasing to God. You don't need to do that. But can I, again, make it real clear. But I also believe this. The more you fall in love with God, the more you'll walk in obedience. Amen? But it won't be a have to. It won't be legalism. It won't be a burden. It'll just be an outpouring of who you are. I don't have, nobody has to stick a gun to my head and say, love on your wife and kids. You better do it. Now. You know, there's, okay. Got to hug my kids. I don't do that. Why? Because I love my wife and kids. As you know, if you've been to this church more than once, I'm an affectionate guy. I hug everybody, amen? Imagine me and my kids. They get hugged all day in front of their friends. I don't care. Too bad. My son's in high school at football practice. I kiss him on the face. He's like, Dad. I'm like, I'm going to be your dad. That's it. They don't like it? Too bad, right? But nobody's telling me, sticking a gun to my head, telling me I've got to go love on my kids. And you know what? As we walk in the fullness of the Spirit, nobody has to pour a bunch of laws on me to walk in the center of His will. Because I just love Him so much. Nobody has to tell me I have to go share your faith. You've got to keep the rules. You've got to do that. I love Him so much I can't wait to introduce Him to people. Amen? Amen? That's the difference. It flows from love, not from the law. And this is Paul's heart saying, look, when I came the first time, this is how you received it. You were joyous. We're almost done. Verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He says, what was that blessing? Do you remember when I first came? What was that blessing that had transformed your life so much that you saw me? Now this is a a hint of what Paul's thorn in the flesh might have been. Some believe it was his eyesight. Some believe it went all the way back to when he was blinded on the road to Damascus. And that his dimming eyesight and potentially oozing eyes was a reminder of where he had come from. And it says here that, you know what? You were so blessed and encouraged by the message, some of you would have taken your own eyes out and given them to me. That's how excited you were about the gospel of grace. That's how excited you were to come to know Christ in an intimate and a personal way. What in the world has happened? How did you get away from that? How did you forget the simplicity of the gospel and return to again the bondage of the law? Verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You once loved me for the truth, now I'm your enemy for preaching the same truth? What's changed? The word of God hasn't changed, the people had. The word of God hasn't changed, maybe you and I have. May we be encouraged to remember again the simplicity of the gospel. And guys, know this. When you speak the truth, even in love, with great boldness and zeal, people aren't always going to want to hear it, are they? They're not always going to want to hear it. But you know what? Some of you even will seek to shut you up. I feel like we've got a government trying to shut us up. I don't get political, you know that, but... Every time I turn around, I'm so tired of separation of church and state, which, by the way, is not in the Constitution, if you didn't know that. It's nowhere in the Constitution. And it was to protect the church from the state, not the other way around. 
And it's amazing. You've got to take the Bible out of school. When back then they said they would fund no public funding for schools unless they taught the Bible. And now we can't have public funding for schools if they teach the Bible. We're getting further away from God. They're telling us to shut up. You know what makes me want to say one thing? Charge! It gets me excited. Why? Because God's going to do great stuff. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? And does Santa Cruz need Jesus or what? That's why we're here. Amen? Not just to grow in here, but to show it out there. To see people's lives change and transformed. And he's saying, guys, you received me with joy. You would have given me your own eyes. I keep sharing the truth with you. And now, you don't receive me anymore. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you might be zealous for them. They zealously court you. These false teachers went after the Galatian believers with great zeal. Isn't that what cultists do? They come after you with great zeal. They're trying to earn another brownie point. And you know what? Walter Martin used to say, the Bible answer man is now in heaven. He said, are we willing to do as much for the truth as the cultists will do for a lie? And they're zealous, trying to draw disciples unto themselves. And he said, they, they come after you with great zeal, with false self-serving affection, not out of love for a people, but attempt to sway them over to their way of thinking. They want to exclude you, keep you away from the truth and the affection of Paul, the affection of the Lord, promoting their legalistic agenda rather than the simple truth of the gospel. You know what, guys? If you find somebody that's got a one, you know, a one, playing a one-song banjo, have you met these people? they got one doctrine. That's all they want to talk about. And it's not the cross. Run away. I'm amazed at the number of people, all they ever want to talk to you about. I'm in India... We just led a bunch of people to the Lord. The guy carrying my bags up to the room says to me, Oh, you're a Christian. Well, so am I. Do you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or just in the name of Jesus? And he wanted to debate me for four hours on that. I'm like, bro, get over it. You're in India. There's a billion people. 99.9% of them don't know Christ. Quit worrying about that and start preaching the gospel. Quit chasing after the pet doctrine. Quit being zealous to... Convince people over to your way of thinking. Stop it. Point them to Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's get them back to the cross. This is Paul's point. Look at you. You're belaboring one point. They're beating you up with one simple thing. But it is good to be zealous in good things always, and not always when I'm present with you. It is good to be zealous. It is good to be zealous. But be zealous for that which is good. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seek to establish their own righteousness. That's out of Romans 10. There are those who are zealous without knowledge. Zeal isn't always good if what's behind it isn't the cross. Amen? And a lot of people are very zealous, but zeal does not mean it's accurate. All right. Verse 19 and 20, last two verses. My little children for whom I labored and birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. How does Paul end this section this morning? He looks at him and says, my little children. He felt that he was their father in the faith. He had shared the love of God with them and his heart was broken to see how they had turned away from the gospel and were pursuing the law. And he's, I'm going to change my tone toward you, he says. Man, my heart breaks for you. I love you guys so much. It hurts me to see what you've fallen into. 
Now next week, we're going to pick up. And when we do, he says, you know, Christ has been formed in you, and now sadly I've seen what you've turned away to. But next week, I want to encourage you, read ahead. And we're going to look, again, that spiritual maturity is a result of intimacy, not legalism. But we're going to see a clear contrast next week between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael being a son of the flesh, and Isaac a son of the promise. When we try to do things in the flesh, how'd that work out with Hagar? Not good. We were in, we were in Israel, and they had this guy pretending to be Abraham, and we rode camels, and we put the stuff on, and we're having dinner, and he's talking around, walking around talking like Abraham and all this stuff. And I said, hey, Abraham, I got a question for you. He goes, yeah, I go, so what's up with Hagar anyway? He goes, oy vey, it was a big mistake, right? And it's true. <laughs> big mistake. Why? Because they tried to accomplish in the flesh what they should have done in the spirit. Amen. And the same is true for us. May we not try to accomplish in the flesh what can only come through the spirit. So what's the source of spiritual maturity, you guys? Is it keeping the law and keeping rules and keeping rituals and keeping feasts? Or is it? Falling in love with the Lord. As we fall in love with Him, spiritual maturity will be a natural outpouring of intimacy with Almighty God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, Lord, that it's by grace we've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Father, I pray that we'd all experience deeper intimacy with You. Lord, we know that comes by simply being still and knowing that You're God pursuing you with our whole hearts, Lord, just being desperate for you. Lord, help us when we're, we're weak and weary to continue to turn to you. Lord, help us to begin, spend, and end our days with you. Lord, we know that without you we can do nothing. So we come humbly and desperate for you, asking that there would be more of your spirit and less of us. Lord, may you fill us afresh with your spirit to overflowing. May we die to ourselves and to our will and our passions to pursue only yours. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. And Lord, I feel led to pray, continue to pray for Santa Cruz County. Lord, give us a burden for these people like you have. Help us to see them through your eyes. Help us, Lord, not to be judgmental, but Lord, to be brokenhearted. And Lord, to be loving and gracious. The way that you've shown grace towards us, may we show it towards others. So Father, we love you and we praise you. May we worship you now. You're worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.